My name is Aaron Stein, and I am the Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks. You are listening to The Warcast, the members-only podcast for what you need to know now. Welcome to The Warcast. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Afshan Astabar, who is an Associate Professor of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School and author of Vanguard of the Imam. Afshan, it's good to have you back on the show. Yeah, great to be back. So I think for listeners who have heard you on the show before, it's not going to be a huge secret what we're talking about. Protests seem to have escalated in Iran, uh, and we're now seeing external displays of support for the protesters from Iranian national teams, whether they be at the World Cup or whether they be Iranian uh, athletes in regional games, expressing solidarity with the protesters and seemingly giving credence to the idea that the regime needs to be changed uh, or needs to make significant um, changes to how it governs. Can you give the listeners the latest on what's been happening in Iran and what the status of the protests are? Basically, these these protests have been ongoing all across various parts of Iran. They've been hottest in certain areas um, uh, like uh, the the western part of Iran, uh, which is largely Kurdish or in largely Kurdish areas of western Iran. Um, uh, but also in Iran South, uh, they've picked up uh, in Tehran and, and in other places, small towns, medium towns, small cities, large cities, um, all across the country. Uh, what, what, what is kind of driving them beyond sort of the, the, the general um, rejection uh, of the regime by an increasingly large population of mostly younger Iranians, um, uh, but uh, it, I would say it, it, while, while sort of Gen Z folks are maybe the vanguard of these protests, they're being supported uh, by, by older people just about every turn. But what's, what's sort of like creating a, a natural tempo for these things is basically every time somebody dies uh, in one of these protests, there's a funeral and there's this, there's this um, uh, Iranian custom um, uh, uh, that um, after 40 days has passed, um, that uh, after somebody has died and 40 days has passed, that, that you mourn that person in a group ceremony. And in sort of the custom of martyrdom in Iran, if you will, uh, in terms of like political martyrs, um, the way that that works is generally there is a march or, you know, a protest or some kind. Um, and that's been what sort of governing sort of the tempo of these things is, is somebody dies. Um, it's usually a young person. Um, and 40 days later, there is sort of, you know, an inspiring kind of protest. And then that, of course, leads to more deaths and whatever. And it's not just every 40 days, but it's creating sort of a natural excuse for people to go out. Uh, and protest. Meanwhile, protests are happening every day in other places, irregardless of, of deaths or not. Um, but every time somebody dies, it's sort of intensifying um, the protests in that location, right? Um, and so what we're seeing now is that that's kind of what's sort of given legs, if you will, to the uh, to the protests, why they've been able to sort of naturally last. And this happened in 1979 to 1978. Um, uh, it, it's, it's sort of this natural tempo for Iranian protest movements. 
Um, but what else is going on is that Iran's sort of security crackdown on the protests has really sharply escalated in Western Iran, in the Kurdish uh, areas of Western Iran, places like Mahabad and, and, and others, where Iran is basically um, starting uh, a full militarized crackdown uh, in certain cities using automatic gunfire, uh, military vehicles, uh, the whole gambit, not just truncheons, not just tear gas, not, you know, uh, bird shot or rubber bullets, but, but they're just, they're just killing people, uh, or at least, um, uh, uh, killing more than, than they were, uh, in other protests. And it's really difficult to know what's going on because Iran, the other thing that Iran has just recently done is shut down the internet, um, in most of Western Iran and in across large parts of Iran and slowed uh, the, 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 the dial-in internet um, uh, to a crawl. So basically people aren't able to get, they're not able to communicate with each other very easily, but they're also not able to sort of get uh, videos and, um, uh, and pictures out of Iran. So this creates sort of this, you know, this gap in, in outside um, observations of the protest movement. And Iran takes these advantage, takes advantage of this. Well, it's not advantage. They deliberately do this in order to, to conduct security crackdowns with as little noise as possible. So the noise comes out after the dust settles, not while it's ongoing. Um, so that's, that's chilling really that it's, that it's going on now. Yeah. I think for people watching this, I think it's difficult to know like where this is going and is the regime truly being destabilized by these protests, you know, or are these protests going on and there are military crackdowns, as you say, that are happening and the regime is relatively stable or are there military crackdowns because the regime feels as if it's unstable. You know what I'm saying? And so it's a hard question to parse, particularly in the absence of, of information as you just talked about. But I, I think a lot of listeners would be curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I would say it's both. Uh, both that the regime uh, seriously uh, uh, fears what is going on. This is, this is an existential crisis uh, for the regime. But they also have um, some confidence uh, that they can get away with murder, you know, uh, at a large scale, that it's not going to create, um, uh, a, a more, uh, violent, um, uh, unrest, uh, and it's not going to create sort of, uh, you know, Western intervention, a military intervention, which is really what they fear the most. Um, because that is something that they, they wouldn't be able to survive. Um, not easily, uh, but, uh, a war against their own people is something that they think they could survive. Um, so I think they, they, they take it really seriously. The, the problem for the regime is that this protest is not new. You know, these protests have been going on at various stages in Iran's history, but the, the Gen Z protests, if you will, uh, as, as I sort of have been thinking about them have been ongoing since since late 2018. And what's made these protests different from what happened in 2009 or 1999 or other points in Iran's history um, uh, is that uh, they sort of began with the assumption 
that the regime uh, needed to go. Uh, they, they, they didn't start as reformist movements. They didn't start in support of uh, a, a political candidate in Iran. They didn't start asking for changes. Um, they started with, with um, slogans that were, you know, that, that went against the, the, the very premise of the Islamic Republic. Things like death to the dictator, for example, um, which they also did in 2009, but that was something that evolved in 2009. Um, uh, but that's where they began in 2018 and 2019 and where they began this time. But also uh, very deliberately, you know, having slogans against Iran's foreign policy, its support for Hamas and Hezbollah and things like that. Um, everything that they know that the regime cares about, they've been targeting. Statues of Qasem Soleimani, for example, have been torched all across the country and, and placards and billboards with his image. Um, uh, placards of the Supreme Leader or of his predecessor, Khomeini, um, uh, have, have been burned and torched and, and trashed uh, all over the country, in classrooms, in villages, in cities, everywhere. So what the regime is dealing with is not just sort of uh, a bunch of kids that are upset because the girls, you know, can't let their hair down. Uh, they're dealing with an entire generation who, um, uh, you know, probably uh, the vast majority of um, completely reject the Islamic Republic and hold no allegiance whatsoever to the premises that gave it birth, right? They don't care about whatever the U.S. did to, to Iran in the past. They have no connection to Mossadegh. They have no connection to the Shah and the Pahlavis. They have no connection to Khomeini. They don't remember 1979. Uh, they, were, they were not even an idea uh, at that point. They don't remember the Iran-Iraq war. They don't remember the hopeful 90s when reformism seemed like it might uh, uh, make some changes and, and, and shape uh, the Islamic Republic in a different way. They don't remember any of it. All they know is the 21st century and really the last decade, which has been, you know, privation and alienation um, and misery for, for a lot of them. Um, and so if you're the if you're the regime, you realize you've lost an entire generation. The other generations, the elder millennials, Gen X, they had their protest movements, too. Um, but they grew up. They got discouraged because the regime cracked down on them. Um, and they grew up, they had kids, they got jobs. And once you do those things, you don't want to risk your life, uh, for politics, generally speaking, but these kids haven't gotten there. And these kids don't have the prospects that the, the, uh, that the other generations had to get jobs, to, to get married, to afford apartments, any of it. So they've got very little hope. They've got, you know, um, you know, uh, buckets of rage. And they're letting the regime have it. And so what, what is challenging for the regime is two things. One, they've lost a generation. Two, the current protests that are going on now, unlike the ones that happened in 2019, um, which were more sort of uh, broad, uh, broadly framed and seemed to be more about economic um, uh, insecurity, uh, these are about, you know, outwardly. Us, you know, what, what the world sees is that these are about young girls wanting to just sort of not have to cover their hair, right? It's about basic gender, uh, not even gender equality, just basic gender rights is, is what they're about. Um, uh, that's what the world sees, at least. 
Um, as I've said, they're about much more than that, but that's what, that's what the world sees. And so, you know, to, to go to, to, to really crush these protests, they're going to have to go to war against their daughters, against their nieces, against their cousins and aunts and everybody else. And, you know, that's going to require killing a lot of kids, a lot of young women. Uh, and I, I think that they are, that they're afraid of of what could happen if they go through that. I have no doubt that there are parts of the regime that are willing to do that and more, but I think there's other people in the room that that suggest, hey, that that could spark something that we don't understand yet. You know, so let's see if we can, you know, kill it by a thousand paper cuts as opposed to, you know, a sledgehammer. Well, that leads to the 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 final question I have here and then we can wrap it up. You know, the U.S. often finds itself being pushed and pulled, right? There's a lot of advocates, particularly of regime change in the United States, who would like to see the U.S. be more, more robust and more forceful. Now, there are a lot of people who push back against this and say, well, if you're more robust and you're more forceful, you're going to give the regime all the excuses it needs to label this as a foreign plot. If you were giving advice to the Biden administration, you know, who I think has been more um, forward-leaning uh, than the Obama administration was in 2009, um, and their response, uh, what would it be? I think they can do a lot more. Um, and that is because, I, you know, the, the, the regime labeled this a foreign plot from the get-go. Um, they, uh, they completely blame the people who are killed or the people who are arrested as foreign agitators, as, as paid spies, you know, by, by the enemies of Iran. That narrative has sailed. I don't, I don't buy for one second that when when the U.S. when the U.S. exerts pressure on Iran, that it somehow emboldens hardliners or any anything like that, because that is the world that they live in. The U.S. doesn't have to do anything; it's going to be blamed on the U.S. So that that's that uh, that narrative has already sort of uh, happened. Um, but there are limits, I think, to what the U.S. can do effectively without sort of you know, stirring up something that, that, that it might not be able to contain, right? And that gets to military intervention. I think military intervention is, is really, 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 uh, you know, um, problematic and squishy, especially because we know how it's worked out in other parts of that region. I think Iran is different than Syria or Libya, uh, but it's, it's also a big country with complex factors. And, you know, I mean, to be honest, the U.S. I don't think would do anything like that, um, given uh, what, uh, what we're trying to achieve elsewhere. But, but I think they can exert a lot more pressure. I think they can exert the utmost pressure, frankly, in, in terms of, uh, policy, in terms of diplomacy, in terms of, um, measures that aren't just sanctions, but can be, uh, ways to get, you know, um, uh, to open up communications, uh, in Iran. I think they can hold Iran's, uh, regime accountable for everything that they do, uh, shine as much daylight on what's happening um, at the very least. Well, that, uh, Afshan, as always, it's good to have you on the Warcast. 